you can open your Bible to First Thessalonians chapter four, actually chapter five. First uh, Thessalonians chapter five. Now, um, two weeks ago, I was planning on teaching this, but as you all know, two weeks ago was when we received that wonderful news that Pastor Mike's father got saved, and um, we still praise the Lord for that. And um, but this is a, a message that I think is very, very applicable to everyone who is a Christian. And um, I pray that today's lesson will be an exhortation to all of us um, to, to live a life that is pleasing to God and also to, to um, form part of the body of Christ as, as God wants us to be. But before we get into it, I just ask that we bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we, we thank you that we can be together this morning. Lord, thank you for the great singing. Um, it's so refreshing to, to our souls to, to be able to sing from, from our hearts and, Lord, to think on you and um, to set our thoughts on you, Lord. And um, we thank you so much, Lord, that we can praise you. And, um, Lord, we, we look forward to what you will be teaching us, what you'll be showing us today, Lord. Please, Lord, come, come touch our hearts um, Lord, we often, we often look for new revelation, Lord, but sometimes the things that we just need to be reminded of are the most important things. And Lord, please come and remind us of things that we know. Help us not to switch off when we think we know something, Lord, but rather to have ears to hear what you have to tell us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Um, now, two weeks ago, I briefly reminded you of what we were looking at in First Thessalonians before we stopped with the lessons in this book. And um, it was mainly regarding salvation, the, law, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And in both instances, we find that Paul closes off those sections with, wherefore comfort one another with these words. We see that in verse 18 of chapter 4. And we also see it in verse 11 of chapter 5, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as you do. There is comfort to be found in the teaching of Christ's return. Now, Paul addressed numerous issues regarding this mystery, but at the end he just drew his audience attention back to this comfort that, that every believer must find in this message that Jesus is coming back. Understanding this mystery of the rapture correctly must bring the Christians, must bring each Christian great hope, the knowledge that God will come to fetch his church before this time of wrath should be a great source of comfort. Now, we won't revise everything that we looked at, and I don't think it necessary, but if you have any questions regarding the rapture or the second coming, please do not hesitate to ask about that. And if you're not sure whether you are a part of that rapture, please also do not hesitate to ask about that. Now in today's text, Paul changes focus from the rapture and the second coming to some exhortations, some admonitions to the church, this church at um, the Thessalonians. And I believe his focus shift is intentional 
where he shifts from the rapture and he shifts his focus to exhortations to live a sanctified life. How do you live in light of the coming of Jesus? Do you concern yourselves purely with that Jesus is coming? And so all you're thinking about is setting dates and you know, seek, seeking the signs and all these things. Or do you focus on your personal readiness? And that's why Paul shifts from the rapture to now this is what you must do while you wait. And you can actually see that, that he's concerned. So you'll see from verse 12 all the way through to verse 22, he has various exhortations. Then he end, ends off in verse 23 of chapter 5. He says, and the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray God, um, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you see his heart is, I'm giving you these exhortations because I want you to live in a sanctified way until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get into our text for today from verse 12. Paul says, And I beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and unto all men." Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now you'll see Paul starts this list of exhortations and he starts it off in verse 12 and 13 towards the local church. He starts by looking at the pulpit, and he starts by looking at the pew. So it's a general church dynamics um, exhortation. You see, a true God-fearing pastor is called by God to a specific people for a specific purpose. And a true God-fearing believer will acknowledge and respect that God-ordained position. So there has to be a balance between these two. A church that does not honor its pastor is like a home where the children don't honor their parents. The relationship is scarred and peace and teamwork does not exist and ultimately the house is broken up. And that's why in verse ten, at the end of verse 13 you see there, and be at peace amongst yourselves. This peace is only possible if both the pulpit and the pew are in their rightful places fulfilling their God-ordained roles. There has to be a balance between these two. Now, let's look at some of the duties that we find um, in, this, in the, these two verses. And we'll start with what God has to say about the pulpit. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Titus chapter 1 and 1 Tim Timothy chapter 3 has various exhortations and a long list of the requirements for these various positions. But let's keep it to our text and see what God wants us to see regarding these prerequisites for um, the pulpit, the pastor. It starts off in verse 12. It says, And I beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor 
among you. So the first thing that a pastor must do is he must labor. The second thing we see is that uh, who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. They should also be overseers. They must be laborers. They must be overseers. And then also further on it says, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. They should also admonish and instruct. Now, one thing I want to mention about the laborers, it says, who labor among you. Who labor among you. As examples, you see them laboring. That's what you need to see in action. You need to see a pastor who does not just preach, but who also does. And then it's also see, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, you can turn, it's there, it's just a few pages to the right. 1 Timothy 5.17. It says in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule be well um, counted, uh, who rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. So the pastor must labor among you. He must be active. He must be willing to work among the people. But also, so that's the example side, but also in labor, he must labor in the word and in doctrine. So there is, you have to, a pastor has to be a faithful student, but he also needs to be an example of what he studies put out in action. Then also we saw that in verse 12 that a pastor or this pulpit one of the duties is that they are over you. They are overseers. Now the Greek word interestingly says standing before. They stand before the flock to lead them in a way of righteousness. That's what it means to be an overseer. They stand before the flock to show them this way of righteousness. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, I'll read it to you. It says, feed the flock of God which is among you. That's exactly what we're reading here. Labor among you. So feed the flock of God which labor among you, taking oversight. There's your overseeing. Oh, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. The, 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 the pastor must be an example, not in word, in doctrine, but also in action. And then the last thing that we see in verse 12 is that the pastor or the pulpit needs to admonish the pew. To admonish is to put in mind. It is to, um, to, to caution or to reprove. To put in mind to caution or to reprove. So the faithful shepherd will not just labor in the study of the word, but also in deeds as he labors with the sheep. He'll look out for them. He'll point them to the way that they should go as he consistently puts in mind the way of righteousness. All three of those things need to be present in the pulpit. Now, what's the duty of the pew? What's the duty of the pew, the people sitting, listening to the pastor? What is the correct response, if we could put it that way? Look at verse 12. It says, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. To know them. That is to sufficiently understand their context so that you can sympathize with them, so that you can serve them, and so that you could effectively pray for them. You need to know them. It is also to have sufficient knowledge of their day to day conduct and their labors 
such that you can, so that they can be an example and an encouragement to you. It doesn't help you know of a pastor on YouTube that you like listening to. I'm not saying there isn't any benefit in that, but I'm saying you need to be able as a follower of Jesus Christ to say, that is the way I need to live. I need to be able to follow an example. So you need to know them which labor among you, to have a sufficient knowledge of their day-to-day context so that that can be an example to you. So that when you find yourself in a situation, you can almost say, I've seen Pastor Mike act that way in this situation. Therefore, I can emulate that. You need an example which you can follow. And the only way you'll be able to know them sufficiently, to know them in this manner, is if you labor with them. Labor with them in prayer, labor with them in speech and conduct and everything that you do. The second thing that we see that's the responsible, responsibility of the pew is in verse 13. It says, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. To esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. The Christian is to think rightly and lovingly of his or her pastor. Not because of his personality or charm, but rather because of his faithful service to God and for the sheep. To God and for the sheep. So in verse 12 to 13, we see that both the, both the pulpit and the pew have a role to fulfill. When these two are in harmony, then the end of verse 13, so be at peace among yourselves, is possible. When the pew is doing what it's supposed to do and the pulpit is doing what it's supposed to do. So I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, where do we stand in regards to these responsibilities that God has put in place? And um, our prayer is, should be that this is Christ's desire for His bride. And I pray that it is your desire for your own life regarding what God wants from you. In verse 14, it goes on. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. So now it shifts from exhortations regarding the church in terms of the pastor and the, and the pew, and now it moves on to general exhortations to Christians of any sort. It says, I exhort you, brethren. And then he starts with, warn them that are unruly. Now, I find it interesting that he ends off verse 13, and be at peace, and then he says, okay, now warn them. You see, we often, we often mistakenly default to a position of conflict avoidance whenever we think of peace. And um, because Paul is aware of this temptation, he says, no, you need to warn them that are unruly. In fact, Paul did this in many of his letters. In, have a look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. We read here how Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, how Paul speaks to this church and how he puts to practice this warning them that are unruly. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any were, would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, that's your unruly, Wor- working not at all, but are busy bodies. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by the Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word, 
by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means, the Lord be with you all. He finishes it off. He says, mark that one, put him aside, don't have company with him, not as an enemy, but as a brother, now have peace. And so pointing out the unruly, pointing out those who are not living up to the call of God, who are, I want to say, damaging the testimony of Jesus Christ, need to be marked. Otherwise, the church could be seen as part of that unruly behavior. So, peace follows after pointing out unruly behavior. You see, Paul understood that God defined peace, um, or God defined peace is centered around truth. It comes from life surrendered and living in submission to truth. That's how you find peace, is when people say, here is the truth, let's all agree to that truth and live around that truth. It's not by avoiding the things that are difficult. It's by dealing with the things in a loving way, but according to truth. So, in other words, not addressing the brother or sister who is living contrary to the submission of the truth is not preserving the peace. It's postponing a greater peace-disrupting event. We need to give church discipline its rightful place. That's what Paul is getting at. He's not saying we walk around looking to point out faults and to elevate ourselves and to say, that one is doing that, that I am higher than that. That is not at all what this is. It is pointing out because we're concerned about truth primarily. And there's a way to handle that. This is truth in love, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. So giving the rightful place to church discipline. As Jesus also describes, he says in, in Matthew chapter 18, it speaks about there's a step-by-step process. It's not just that person did that, let's get the whole church, let's go sort that person out. No. If your brother offended against you, go sort it out between the two of you. That is the start of church discipline. It's actually brotherly love. And it says you do it that way that you may win the brother that you may keep that brother. That is the point. That is the heart in which you approach the unruly people. It's, I want to bring them back to truth. I don't want them there. I don't want them to be an enemy. I want them to be a brother. That's why we speak the truth in love. Back to verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. After it says, warn them that are unruly, it says, comfort the feeble-minded. For there to be peace, in the church, not only should the unruly be warned and brought back in line, but those who are struggling and weak must be encouraged. The feeble-minded are the faint-hearted, those in fear, those in doubt, those who are depressed, and those who are cast down. And um, I think in today's environment in which we live, there are certainly not a shortage of these people who are feeble-minded who are faint-hearted. The Bible says, comfort them. You comfort them by pointing them to the source of comfort. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, listen to this, it says, Blessed be God, even, our, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. 
who comforteth us in all our tribulation. In our tribulation, that's where we find comfort. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted. It's comfort, 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 but all of it starts with the God of all comfort. And so when you see someone who is feeble-minded, you comfort them by pointing them to the only place where they can find comfort, to the place where you find comfort. You point them also to things of eternity. We see that in chapter 4 at the end of, um, at the end of chapter 4 verse 18. We also see that as I pointed out in the beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5. How that you point them to things of eternity. You point them to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. That he will save them from the wrath to come. And that they have an eternity. They have eternal security with him. And you point them to that. Because if we look purely at things in this world. It's just a matter of time before you fall into depression. Because life is not always happy-go-lucky. And so we need to point them to Jesus is in control and he will make all things right. That should be a great source of comfort. You see, only these truths from Scripture shared by a loving and a caring brother or sister can comfort in the darkest times. That is why Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians. I don't know if you remember, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul sends Timothy to do what? To come comfort them. Have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. You see, he sends a brother to come and bring the truth to these people. And these people find comfort despite their tribulations that they were in. in. They were being persecuted. And they find comfort in that brother who comes to share that truth with them. Now back at First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, we've seen warn them that are unruly. That's the one side. Comfort them that are feeble-minded. That's the other side. It says support the weak and be patient to all men. Support the weak. You can open to Galatians chapter 6. Support the weak. Just a few pages to the left. Support the weak. That is to be a pillar to those who are struggling to keep themselves up. Be a pillar to those who are struggling to keep themselves up. And just on that, I just want to point out, it's not always the pew who is in need of support. It is often the pulpit as well. Someone could be weak in biblical doctrine and this causes them a lot of trouble as they are tossed to and fro and don't find footing in their faith that is a way in which they can be weak doctrinally they can't they they're never stable in what they believe they don't know where they're going they don't know the basic truths of scripture that's a way in which they can be weak and you can support them by discipling them by showing them what god has to say about certain things or someone could be weak emotionally. They can be cast down. They can be spent. They can be drained. Just tired. But you can support them through prayer, through comfort and counsel. Just being there for them. So that regardless of the type of weakness, we read in Romans 
chapter 15. I'll read it to you. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. It says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. You see, those who are strong, their heart must be on those who are currently weak. Because in a few days, in a year, whenever, you may be the weak one in need of that comfort. You're in Galatians chapter 6. Have a look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, that is to say you are, who are strong in the faith, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill ye the law of Christ. Do you see there is a care from the, for the strong to the weak? And not in an authoritarian way that I know better, I know how to help you. It's in meekness. Considering thyself, this thou also be tempted. Have a look at verse um, 9, chapter 6, verse 9. It says, And let us not be weary in well doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As ye have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see, the Christian should be concerned about doing good, especially to those who are of the household of faith and to comfort those who are weak. And in so doing, in doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love our brother as we love ourselves. All right, and then it says, you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Support the weak, and then it says, be patient to all men. To tie, to tie all this instruction together, he says, essentially, just be nice to others. Be nice to others. Be patient with those who are unruly, who are hard-headed, who need some straightening out. Be patient to them. But also, be patient to those who are weak and may need support for extended periods of time. And just in general, treat those you interact with with patience. Now that sounds like such a nice thing to say, but it is not always such an easy thing to do. But we can do it, and through Christ, who gives us the strength, we certainly can love those around us. Always think about this. Imagine if God was impatient with you. You may have never had the chance to repent. You may have never had the chance to come to faith in him because after you've rejected him or not listened or pushed aside or ignored that, imagine if he gave up on you like we sometimes grow impatient with other people. In Second Peter 3 verse 9, I'm sure you know the verse, but it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, that is patient, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's through God's patience with us that we are able to come to repentance. So think on that before you treat someone impatiently. Now, verse 15, chapter 5, verse 15. The general exhortation continues. He says, See that none render evil for evil. 
unto any man, but ever follow that which is in yourselves and to all men. See that none render evil for evil. So in addition to being patient, as if that was not difficult enough already, let forgiveness and acts of goodness prevail in the church. You see, because often with patience is, okay, I'm just not going to say something, I'm just not going to say something, but actually it's um, to do good. It's to, do, to not render evil for evil, to follow that which is good. And that is a step above just not, could I say, losing your cool with someone. <laughs> so, and it says not just towards Christians, but to all people. Look at the end of verse uh, 14. And be patient to all men. Look at the end of verse 15. And to all men. To all men. So instead of talking too much on this subject, I would like to just show you the emphasis that Scripture places on this. You can open to Proverbs chapter 20. The emphasis that God places on doing good, even when others aren't doing good to you. Or let me almost say, especially when others are not doing good to you. I was speaking to Brother Armand yesterday, and you know, we often... We often think that we are good people because we treat nice people nicely. <laughs> but isn't that exactly the easy thing to do? The difficult thing is when others don't treat you right, to treat them right. And that should be something that distinguishes someone who's saved from someone who's lost. Let me start in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, it says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. From Leviticus. Now look at Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. But wait on the Lord and he shall save thee. You know, I think just that verse, just pausing at that. Say not thou, I will recompense evil for evil, but wait. You know, oftentimes the reason we get upset is because we just don't wait. Wait on the Lord. It's don't react in that moment. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. That is what we all need to hear. Have a look at Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. It says, Rejoice not when thy enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. So what this is actually saying is that God might potentially be working on that person and because you decide, no, I'll, I'll take this into my own hands, you might be taking it away from God who's busy working on that man. Look at um, chapter 24, verse 28. Chapter 24, verse 28. It says, Be not a witness against thy neighbor without cause, and deceive not with thy lips. Verse 29. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his works. He says, say, do, do not do that. 
That is the challenge. That is what God, throughout Scripture, emphasizes. You can turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. Luke chapter 6 verse 35 on this subject says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be children of the highest. Now Romans chapter 12 verse 17 says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, Thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And um, the list actually goes on. I just highlighted a few ones. But I think the point that you see is even when, as it says in First Peter chapter 2, that when Jesus was led to the slaughter, he did not recompense evil for evil. Um, Jesus let them accuse him of things he didn't do. And not only did he not retaliate, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He looked at them with compassion. And I bring us back to that heart of Jesus because the Bible says, let that mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. All right? And so we need to fill ourselves with these thoughts when it comes to treating others who we feel have wronged us, to treat them right. Now, this is a tall order. I acknowledge that. <laughs> so how do we do it? I think the first thing you need to do is you need to acknowledge that God expects this from you. You need to acknowledge that, you know, because sometimes if you don't see that this is what God's desire is for you, you might brush it aside. This is what God's expectation is. Secondly, you need to realize that this is how the Lord treats you. The Lord treats you with mercy and grace and patience and does not recompense evil for evil. He does not give you what you deserve. If he gave you what you deserve, we'd all be in hell because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Also, after you've acknowledged and you've realized that this is how God treats you, you pray that the Lord, through his Spirit, bring this truth to the forefront of your thoughts. So you acknowledge this is what God wants. And this is how God treats me. Lord, bring this to my mind when in that moment someone wrongs me. So that I think on you the way you treat me when I wrong against you. And Lord, that I'll treat this person the way you expect me to treat them. And then you also need to understand that you can only do this through the overcoming strength of Christ in you. It is not natural to not recompense evil for evil. It is natural to say, well, if that's how you're going to be, then this is how I'm going to be. That's natural. It's unnatural. You need to be a new creature in Christ to know that Jesus Christ is the only way in which you can have victory over this. And then you lean on him and you take it day by day. He's our fellow laborer. His burden is light and his yoke is easy and the other way around. But um, he is alongside you 
in that yoke. And he works with you. Take it day by day. Because if you think you have this whole mountain to climb, you might just give up before you start. So the verses, we've looked at these exhortations regarding the church, regarding the general exhortations of how people should work between themselves and treat each other. And now the exhortation continues. But I want to say the verses that follow, you see they're very short verses, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, or up to 22. It's rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, and hold fast to that which is good. All these, can I say, bullets. <laughs> these verses are just a concise summary of Christian virtues and provide the foundational principles for a sound walk in obedience to God. So this is, what is it that God expects from me? What is the, it's kind of like, if you have a whole thing that you need to read and you could have sort of summarized it in five bullets, that's kind of what this is. Five bullets. The first one is, rejoice evermore. Now, when I read that verse, I thought, thanks Lord, I don't have a lot to say about that. There's two words. Rejoice evermore. But then if you think about the idea and what that means to rejoice evermore, you realize you've opened up a massive can of worms. To rejoice is to be calmly happy. Full of joy or simply to be well. To calmly be happy or to simply to be well. That's why we sang this song. It is well with my soul. To rejoice evermore is to always be able to say it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, that, that this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That is what it sounds like to rejoice evermore. Now, how can anyone have such a deep-rooted and unchanging joy through all of life's sorrows and trials? The writer of this hymn, Philip Bliss, alludes to it in his hymn. Look at verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. You see, there's the one side of the coin, and then there's but Christ. Then in the third verse it says, my sin, speaks about his sin, and then it says, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. He brings the Lord back into it. And then, the Lord, and Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. You see, every time he brings it back to praise the Lord, in the Lord, but thank the Lord. You see, he knows that his rejoicing is in the Lord. It's only found in the Lord. 
Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I, and again I say, Rejoice. Sometimes, uh, you know, yesterday I was wondering, I was quoting that verse and Christina actually told me, and the verse continues to say, and again I say rejoice, because <laughs> we sometimes need to hear it that second time. <laughs> sometimes once is not enough. And again I say rejoice. Now what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? You can open to Romans chapter 5. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? To rejoice in the Lord, I think, is to rejoice in Him personally. It's to rejoice in His character and nature. It's to rejoice in trusting Him. And it's to rejoice in His will. Now to start with, to rejoice in knowing Him personally. Have a look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Your rejoicing in the Lord starts with having received the atonement, being saved by His life. That is where the joy starts. And so if you have not had that joy, you cannot expect to be able to rejoice evermore, as this verse requires of us. Now, I said Rejoicing in knowing Him personally. That's the one way we can rejoice in the Lord. The second thing is to rejoice in His character and nature. The moment you get saved and you start getting to know God, and you start learning about who He is and how He does things, you start seeing His character and nature. You see that He never changes and that there's always grace and mercy to be found. That's something to rejoice about. You see the character that, you'll see that His just that's part of his character and that he will one day make all things right and so when people wrong you you don't feel it's your responsibility to make it right in this life because you trust God will take care of it and so that's something to rejoice about you don't have to fight those battles also you can rejoice in his character that he cares he truly cares about you in fact he cares so much about you that he was willing to make himself of no reputation, to take on the form of a servant, to humble himself even to the death of the cross. And then he ever lives to intercede for us. So you can truly rejoice in the fact that he always cares. So that's why I say you can rejoice in knowing him personally, salvation, but you can also rejoice in getting to know him. That is through sanctification, seeing his character and nature. And then I also said you can rejoice in trusting him. You can rejoice in His promises. You can rejoice that He has said certain things about you, about the future, in that He holds all things in His hands and that one day He will make everything right and that He's coming to fetch us. You have a promise of eternity and that this life, whether it, if for some of you it might be going really well right now in your life, but it will only get better as eternity approaches. 
And some of you are really down in the dumps. But take comfort in the fact that it's only getting better. But if you're not saved, this is the best your life will ever be. And if it's down in the dumps, then it's even going to be worse. And so there's a lot of joy the Christian can found in the promises and in the, the fact that there is a hopeful eternity. And then also I said we can rejoice in His will. Rejoice in His will. God's will for every believer is to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so if you can rejoice in that, you will rejoice in your trials. Because you understand that this plays a big role in God's will for your spiritual growth. That's why we see so many exhortations, joy and trial together. Because the Christian can find joy in his trial because he knows what God is busy doing in his life. Whereas if you don't have faith in God, if you are not saved, if you do not have the promises of eternity, if you're not in Christ and not busy being conformed to the image of Christ, what is the purpose of your trials? You might learn something from it, but for what end? Because when you die, nothing ultimately matters. And so you need to be in Christ again to be able to rejoice in your trials because you know it's part of God's bigger plan. In James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That is a word for trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect, that is complete and entire, wanting, lacking nothing. You see, there's an absolute contentment and a joy that stems from knowing that God is working in you. Those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Romans chapter 5, I don't know if you're still there, if you're still there. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into His grace, wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then it says, Not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Do you see that there's a growth? Patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. There's a, there's a purpose. God is working to an end through your trials. And then lastly, why you can, find re, why you can rejoice in His will, knowing that part of His will is that you suffer, is in 1 Peter 4 verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye sh you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Rejoice in the fact that you can be a partaker of Christ's suffering, because when His glory is revealed, you will also um, be exceedingly glad to rejoice with Him. And so, it is only in Him that we can find unwavering joy, regardless of circumstances, to rejoice evermore. I gave you a quote from Albert Barnes. It says, It is the privilege, therefore, of a Christian to rejoice. He has more sources of joy than any other man, sources which do not fail when all others fail. 
He continues to say, I didn't put that on your paper, but he continues to say, a cheerful countenance, an eye of compassion, a conversation pleasant and kind, should always display the joy of his heart and in all his con contact with the world around him, he should show that his heart is full of joy. Do you have such persistent joy? If not, perhaps you are not in Christ in whom that joy is found. But if you are in Christ and you don't experience that joy, perhaps you need the Lord to restore to you the joy of your salvation. If you're familiar with the, the context of um, Psalm 51, David is speaking about his sin with Bathsheba. And this is essentially a letter of, of, of David's heart. He writes in Psalm 51 how he repents and, and wants to make right with God. So, and it's in this context that he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you know what precedes that verse? You see there in verse 12, it says, Psalm 51, verse 12, it says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. But you know what precedes it? Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Do you see what precedes it? It's restoration. A deep and honest desire to be right with God. He is broken for the sin that has torn him away from God's presence. And because of that, he says, Lord, restore I want to have that joy of my salvation again. He had a desire to be right with God. In John chapter 1, John mentions something very similar. You may have heard this before, but in John chapter 1, John writes this letter so that their joy may be full. That's what he says in 1 John, 1 John um, chapter 1 verse 4. He says, These things are right unto you that your joy may be full. That's the purpose of this letter. But then it goes on to say, um, in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So there's a light and there's darkness. Then verse 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's fellowship. You're walking in darkness. You can't have fellowship with the light because you're in darkness. But if you're in walking in the light, you can have fellowship with the light as God is in the light. And John is saying, I write these things unto you that your joy may be full. So that lets me know that the life that is out of sync with God, David's heart before he repented, that fellowship, that light and light was broken. He was in darkness, God was in light. He could not have joy. That's why he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Here we read that God is in the light and we only have fellowship with one another through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is why it's so important to note verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So perhaps you don't experience that joy because you have wandered from the light and are not walking in the light. But praise be to God that verse 9 says that we can be right with him, that we can confess and he will restore to us that joy. And we have the life of David who also confirms that, that David's life was restored, his joy in his salvation was restored. Let's all stand. You can close your eyes and bow your head as we close these thoughts this morning. I would like for all of us to, to take some time and reflect on what we've covered today. We've looked at the responsibilities of the pulpit. We've looked at the responsibilities of the pew. We've looked at those who are weak and those who are strong. We've been exhorted to do good and be patient to all men. And perhaps most challenging of all, we've been exhorted to be patient or to rejoice evermore. If we all take these exhortations to heart, fulfill our calling in the body of Christ, we can all be at peace with one another, labor together, and display the message of joy to the world. I pray that this is your desire as it is my desire this morning to, to fulfill the duty that God has given me. And the Lord has got a calling for you. He's got things He desires from you. It may be small, it may be big, but regardless of what it is, the Lord will be with you through it all. And um, may you go through that rejoicing, knowing that God is busy working in your life, that there is a greater purpose to you being here on earth than just your happiness, than just doing what you think best, but fulfilling an eternal purpose to an eternal God for eternal reward. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can come here this morning. Lord, thank you for what you've shown us this morning. We're so thankful, Lord, for your word. We're so thankful, Lord, that you care so much for us, Lord, that you, that you preserved these things for us, that you had faithful men who were led by the Spirit write these things, Lord, that you preserved them to this day, that we may be able to be exhorted by it, encouraged by it, comforted by it, Lord, that we have the privilege of serving you through the way we treat others we can be patient, that we can do good, and that we can show the joy of Jesus Christ to everyone around us, Lord. Please help us with that, Lord. As I said, when I started this morning, Lord, this may be a reminder to, to many of us. We know that we are to rejoice evermore. We know that patience is a Christian virtue. We know that we should do good and not evil. But Lord, knowing it and doing it are two different things. And so Lord, where we are reminded about this today, we ask Lord that through your Spirit you would help us bring these things to our mind every day that we step by step, day by day, can live a life that is in sync with your heartbeat and do the things that you would have us do. Help us be sensitive to your word. 
Help us spend good time in your word, Lord. Time with you. Lord, for out of that we find direction. Out of that we find peace. Out of that we find a joy that lasts forever. Thank you so much, Lord, that we have this wonderful privilege of studying your word. Please help us to grow thereby. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember service tonight, 6 o'clock on YouTube.